now to the nationwide search for the members of the mob who stormed the Capitol. Dozens of people already arrested, and officials expect hundreds of suspects could eventually be charged. Our chief global affairs correspondent, Martha Raddatz, has the latest on that. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, Amy. The rioters converged on Washington from all over the country, and this morning investigators from coast to coast are trying to track down as many as they can, working through thousands of images and tips. They broke through us off. This morning, more alarming video from the violent pro-Trump mob attacking the Capitol. Watch as these rioters hurl a fire extinguisher at police officers, several hit in the head. Homicide detectives investigating the death of Officer Brian Sicknick have been looking into reports he may have been hit by a fire extinguisher before collapsing hours later. But it is unclear whether Sicknick is in this video. Videos like this one showing an officer being crushed by rioters, making the D.C. police chief emotional. It makes me sick to my stomach to to see that, that video. And that officer, obviously, he was afraid for his life. Now, FBI field officers in all 50 states are combing through videos and images, along with some 45,000 tips. I have talked to officers that said who have um, uh, done two tours in Iraq and said that this has, was, 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 more, was scarier to them than their time in combat. The FBI urgently hunting for this man, suspected of planting these two powerful pipe bombs in the RNC and DNC headquarters, releasing new photographs highlighting the suspect's distinctive backpack and shoes. Also asking for help identifying this man in this sickening image carrying a Confederate flag through the Capitol. Hundreds could face arrest in the coming days. So far, only 70 arrests have been made. Jake Angeli, who appeared at multiple pro-Trump events dressed in the costume he wore during the attack on Congress, now in an Arizona jail facing violent entry and disorderly conduct charges, where his mother says he has refused to eat since turning himself in this weekend. He gets very sick if he doesn't eat organic food, literally, will get physically sick. Adam Johnson, the Florida man caught on camera carrying House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's lectern, charged with three counts, including theft of government property. He was released on bond after posting $25,000 in bail. And now Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan revealing that up to 15 law enforcement officers are under investigation for their response to the assault. It was appalling to be side by side with the heroes that were doing everything right and then having others taking selfies uh, with the uh, domestic terrorists. The Capitol Police Department saying several officers are currently suspended and that they are planning to, quote, investigate these behaviors for disciplinary action up to and including termination. And it is not just law enforcement investigating its own. There were a number of former military involved in the siege of the Capitol and possibly active duty. The Pentagon asking for help in identifying any service members involved in the attack or promoting extremism. Robin? Beyond disturbing. All right, Martha. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we look back at January 6th, the insurrection that shook a nation, that brought us to a point of wondering what in the world is going on. Tonight, we take a look, where are we now versus then, and I believe right at six months later, are we any better off? This is AJC Radio. We deal with that subject tonight. Hang on, folks. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Samson Riddle, William Williams, Quentin Stewart, and Dennis Merritt, the entire AJC radio team tonight, as we take a look at to look back in a very short period of time of what exactly happened on January 7th. What was the impact and the long-term impact of the insurrection that took place uh, uh, in this country uh, six months ago? Uh, and we are, we are dealing with a, a troubling situation uh, that happened there. And lives were lost. I did get an opportunity to even do more research uh, on the impact of the people and the violence that broke out on Capitol Hill. And I believe you had some good people there uh, that were there simply to, to express their First Amendment right. But then it was well overshadowed uh, by the violence that took place and the, and the people that casualties, really, and the, the violence was absolutely uh, out of control. Uh, William, uh, how important is us at least to look back at, at that day uh, because now that is shaped and formed in our history. Uh, those are things that we're going to look back on for a long period of time. It, once something happens of that magnitude, uh, it's, it, it will forever be in our history books. Today. And our children uh, coming up will we'll have to see and hear about these things. The troubling part, I think, about it is is that it is a lot of it was racially. Uh, it was a racial message sent. Uh, you had the white supremacists. Right. Folks that were there, that were there to, uh, would really uh, cause havoc uh, on that cap. We've never seen nothing like it in this country no. before. Uh, tell us a little bit of why it's important we look back today. Well, I think you know you touched on a couple of things. The racial aspect is one. You saw the Proud Boys and other organizations there for the first time in U.S. history. A Confederate flag was in the Capitol, which is one of the one of the real, truly a jaw-dropping uh, piece of history when you think about it. I mean, I mean, here we are, 1865, I believe it was the end of the of the uh, revolution, uh, excuse me, Civil War, and here we are in 2021. This is what we saw. We saw the the, the hatred, the the motive, and I think a lot of the behind that, you know, what was fueling this? What was fueling these people? You know, um, there was a, a Really, the, the lies that they've talked about, they've called it the big lie. Um, people were just enraged because of the political aspect. They felt their candidate did not win, and he deserved to win. And there was there was no way he could have lost, and the country turned on him. And, you know, I mean, you heard, you've heard so much. You've talked about coup. You've talked – I mean, we, we saw something that we – for firsthand that had happened in our country that we've seen televised in other countries. Where you see uprisings and people marching on the Capitol and violence, and then, uh, but this was so 
when you saw it, I haven't seen anything that shocking since since nine eleven. To be honest with you, when you sit there, you you're watching on TV the people there that are banging on doors, the police officers there that are trying to restrain uh, the one police officer that was that was he was literally crying out. He said, "Like I have a family," and I, you know, I mean, it, it's like they just turned on them so quickly. And you think about the term cannibalize; they really just turned on their own, and they had no sense of of uh, any kind of remorse or feelings or anything. They just stormed it. And then for them to, for us to see the pictures of them in the chambers, the guards that were in the chambers, the, what we, the stories that we were told as, the, as they ran the representatives out, told them to seek shelter and security. I mean, there was so much that was going on. And then all of a sudden you realize that's happening in Washington, D.C., of the United States of America, our capital. This is not a third world country, and it's it was hard to digest. No, without question, uh, it's it, look. Uh, just calls has had opportunities uh, to meet some of these people, some of these lawmakers, uh, some of them some very uh, decent people up there trying uh, in a very complicated situation uh, to get stuff done uh, up there. One person is not enough to get get things done. Uh, we've had the privilege to meet those people. So, Kendrick, you was up there with us in D.C. a few times. Uh, when I saw and looked on TV, some of the people that we had actually talked to, uh, Congressman Clyburn, uh, we met with him on a couple of occasions up there, uh, and some other members on that. It's just a lot of people that we've met and to see them scared uh, to the point that life could have been lost uh, was very troubling to me. Especially once you have an opportunity to meet these folks up there. Uh, we don't have a perfect congressional system by a long shot. Uh, but these are voted, these are elected officials that were elected to do something uh, and to get some things done. Your thoughts as we talk about the havoc uh, upon the Capitol and what happened that day as we look back and take a look at where we are now. Are we any, are we any better? Uh, is the Capitol any more secure than what it was on that day? Uh, or the impact? that was left in the minds of these members and their families, uh, that's not something that goes away too quick. Uh, it's it's uh, The way when I first saw it and remembering how it was being in Washington, what seems so surreal is seeing that uh, Promenade Mall fenced off after the fact. Because this is a place where as, as you walk the halls and you're, and you're meeting congressmen and senators, this is a place where Americans – should be able to come and voice their opinions. I mean, throughout the days you see normal citizens meeting congressmen, meeting senators, trying to basically get the ear of someone that can handle uh, their issue, you know. And and it's a place for every American. And that's one thing I felt when I was there is that this this is where the government is supposed to work, and every American has a right to come up here and and have your voice heard. If if anything happens or not, I don't know, but. This is where you come to say, hey, I'm about, this is our place. To have it desecrated by people who, who, did, who, who say they love this country, but then you sought to take a violent route to try to overthrow basically a government. And, if, and it's nothing less than that because how many of these people – you have a right to protest. You have a right to speak to your congressman, your senator. You have a right to get the news and tell how you feel about how this country is working. That's our First Amendment right, but you don't have a right to just feel like, you know, I'm so fed up with it. I'm going to just 
taken in my hands and try to overthrow it by force. To me, that was the most embarrassing day for this country that I have witnessed in my lifetime, that our own citizens, because for, for a reason I totally don't understand yet, still. I don't understand what would make someone, uh, after a fair election, feel like we need to try to uh, overthrow the government as if, like, we're going to start another civil war. Well, here, here, here's the thoughts of those, and I don't want to put everybody in the same boat. If on the Republican side that citizens honestly believe that the election was unfair, they believe that their guy got a bad rep, if they believe that, uh, there you go. So as much as people say it's a fair election, which I agree with, without question, if a person believes that that person did not get a fair shake, and that they were robbed something, especially when they have went out and voted, you're going to have some problems. Uh, regardless of what brought them to that belief, they believed it. They believed that the guy uh, did not get a fair shake at this election. Where, where they came to that conclusion, how they came to it, and what caused them to stand on that and believe it, doesn't justify the actions that took place on January 6th, but it does say if you feel like we've been done wrong, anything's possible. That's where you have a major problem. David, your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I think the, the rhetoric, the political rhetoric on both sides has become so divisive until America is split down the middle and... The, the rhetoric has become so inflammatory. And President Trump obviously was responsible for uh, some inflammatory rhetoric, but it, uh, we've seen it on both sides. Where, whether it's uh, demeaning people in rural, rural America on the Democrat side, uh, and then some of the Republicans uh, looking at people in the cities a certain way and demeaning them. It, it, it's become a country that is so divided and both political parties have been responsible for stoking up flames and demagoguing issues and stoking fear. Uh, and a lot of people are followers. If you start talking enough and saying enough things and then the media promotes some of this uh, rhetoric, uh, people are listening and they get inflamed as the more the rhetoric gets inflamed. It's, it's a really sad day in this country, but is it necessarily shocking to me? No, this is the same country that were, if not a few decades ago, were sticking dogs on African Americans and beating African Americans down. These things, uh, people, this was a government that actually did things like that and, and uh, sanctioned things like that. And it's just, it's tragic uh, that this country has uh, actually come to this. But if people refuse to come together and uh, political parties keep uh, demeaning the, the followers of the other party. Did something like this is bound to happen, and it's bound to happen again. No, without question. In, in regards to President Trump, uh, in regards to his uh, statements, uh, both sides could argue uh, that his statements didn't cause the outbreak, if you will, of, of what happened. Um, it, it, the, I've heard the argument on both sides of it. Uh, 
the problem you have, they said way back in the election, uh, before Trump became president, what you say matters. And it carries a lot of weight. As the president of the United States, if you say something, even remotely leaning toward violence, I don't have to say blatantly go up to the to the Capitol and break in windows and hurt people and kill people. I don't have to say that. But I can say something, uh, whether it's we need to fight, we need to fight with, with force or whatever you want to say, uh, you are the president of the United States. Uh, we, the, the argument that was made before was that at one point the Democratic Party made equally inflaming statements uh, to go fight. Go out and do this. Take your country back. We're going to do this and that. They criticized Maxine Waters uh, for some of her language that had been said. Uh, so I agree with it, it. Both sides of the aisle have got to be careful of what you are saying because people are going to just like you got radicals on the on the on the right, you got far radicals on the left that are going to respond and say, "Well, we want Trump out, and uh, we'll do whatever we have to to get him out." It, it's the same. And I think to David's point, on both sides, something that you have to be careful what you say. Because uh, you've got somebody sitting in their living room uh, in a rural area, maybe somewhere in the country, says, you know what? I heard what President Trump said. I think I'm going to go out and do something about it. That's how dangerous the words are. And well, vice versa. Well, and this didn't happen just from one speech. This stuff was being, this rhetoric has been... Uh, Gaslighting and people have been putting gas uh, on things that are said for years now. Yeah. So this stuff slowly builds up into a pressure cooker, and then people explode. Uh, it has to be toned down, or uh, again, uh, we're going to be able to bring up a civil war in this country if, if these politicians, which are leaders of this country, don't tone down their rhetoric. And we're going to get into that even more. Uh... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial in to 646-200 as we take a look back, 0628-646-200-0628, as we take a look back on January 6th, actions that shook a nation. And as I sat down, I know they had a CNN special on some of the stuff and how this built up to what it was. Um, what's alarming to me is that the some of the generals on the Joint Chiefs had heard that this action was coming. Not one word was said to say to the president, we cannot uh, allow this. We at least, even if we can't stop everybody, the number of people in the crowds that I saw on that never there's no way you have enough local police to defend against a mob. That's why they were able to get through the barriers as quick as they were. It's that they were outnumbered. Uh, the generals, the, the, the National uh, Guard should have been called in uh, at the hint, at the possibility of this type of violence breaking out. Precautions should have been put in space, in place. Excuse me, for uh, a huge. You're better overestimating than underestimating. Let's be sure in the event these rumors are true, we're going to be prepared. Why was that not done? Well, and there's a point to add to that. The former chief of the U.S. Capitol Police uh, told Congress uh, that security officials at the House and Senate, 
Senate rebuffed his early request to call in the National Guard ahead of the demonstration in support of President Trump. Um, uh, the former chief, uh, who he ended up being forced to resign, uh, made those comments uh, in an interview with the Washington Post. Um, uh, he told uh, the Post that the House Sergeant Arms, Paul Irving, was concerned with the optics of declaring an emergency ahead of protest and rejected a National Guard presence. Uh, and then uh, he also said that the Senate Sergeant at Arms, Michael Stinger, recommended that he informally request the Guard to be ready in case it was needed to maintain security. So we're dealing with what is Washington? Optics. Well, we don't want to look like we're expecting uh, something bad. And then one congressman actually said uh, he expected the Trump supporters uh, to be uh, more peaceful, which some were there. Some were, but he expected them to be peaceful, unlike, but he, then he tried to compare and contrast to the Black Lives Matter supporters. Well, uh, that, that's almost a, a racist statement. Well, the blacks are going to come and they're going to tear things down, but these are good God-fearing Americans, these uh, Trump supporters, and they're going to, uh, they're just going to come and, and protest. So and, even his, his view of, of of the situation uh, was like, these are just good people. No, people are people. You don't know whether a white man's going to get out of control or a black man's going to get out of control. They can both be led to uh, and uh, incited to do violence. And, and on well, your point, just real quick, on that point, you're talking about optics. Now, this is the part that, that, that goes with that. As you go into Washington and you're talking to these congressmen, I mean, we've met with Republicans, Democrats, some of the nicest people you'll meet. I mean, I've had such warm reception, receptions from some of these uh, Republicans that that you'll be shocked because once their camera gets there, they're a different person. Right. And I think that's what they have to really be careful of. It's like you can, when you're when you're talking to that congressman and that person, you see the reasonableness, you see the human, you see okay, you're hearing and feeling where I'm from. But then once they get in front of those news cameras right. and they get in that group of whatever side they're taking they turn into this character and i wish if more americans could just really experience it, be real don't care about the optics care about this country i think more well, stuff gets done well and, I, and, and that's appreciated that uh, that vision we would we should have in the world of politics in the world of self-service uh when it comes to the political arena uh you're unlikely to get that that's just the bottom line, that at the end of the day, uh, we are playing for the cameras. A lot of them are. And we've met some good people up there. That when, it, when the cameras get on, they're going to say what's politically correct. Uh, it happens. It's the world we live in with politics and self-preservation, if you will, that I don't want to do anything as a politician that will get me out of my job, that will anger constituents. And that is why, to be honest with you, President Trump still has a foothold in the Republican Party is because nobody is getting ready to come out against him on the level that they could. Because guess what? 74 million Americans voted for Donald J. Trump. There's nothing you can do with that. That's what happened. Those 74 million are still among us. And... We have an election coming up in 2022, midterm election, and 2024, a presidential election, which 
according to what seems to be on the agenda, that President Trump will be among the number running. That's what's being said. That's what's being talked about. So until, uh, and it's unfortunate, and I'm not saying I agree with it. That's the world we live in. And that's why you have the House, uh, when they tried to vote for a amendment in regarding a, a committee uh, on the January 6th uh, uh, catastrophe, uh, they couldn't come together to vote on it. Because they said, nah, because, you know what? There's Because they're worried about Trump voters, they're going to say you went against our guy. We're not getting ready to put our neck on the line, but that's, and, and to Kendrick's point, in, in a perfect world, that would be perfect. In a world that we had no issues, that would be perfect. Unfortunately, uh, we don't live in those times, and, and these are things that have to be looked at. And we're going to get into more of this dialogue. I think we've laid the foundation uh, pretty solid. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, our special guest is going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour, uh, Jody Evans, title uh, is the co-founder of Code Pink, uh, an after-school writing program, H26LA. She has been a visionary advocate for peace for several decades and inspired motivator. Uh, Jody invigorates uh, activists and reinvigorates seasoned advocates through her ever-evolving, always exciting message to promote peace. Well, if we needed somebody to speak about promoting peace, we need them right now. Uh, because this country, not only in Washington, as we visit Washington, January 6th, things that took place, violence is breaking out all over this country in a very, very big way, and it's in unprecedented numbers. We're going to deal with all of that. This is AJC Radio, folks. January 6th, then and now, where are we? Continues after the break. This is AJC Radio. <laughs> police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice, and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call or just calls today. 
1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown. And the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. 
And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. you got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Ladies and gentlemen, the AJC Radio tonight, as we have decided to take a look back at January 6th, the insurrection that took place on Capitol Hill that shook not only the, the nation's capital, but really shook a nation uh, and its citizens around, and not only that, probably folks around the globe who suffered really some really serious emotional and mental uh, anguish as a result of what happened, the death that took place there, the violence of seeing our citizens, our, excuse me, our elected officials running and hiding uh, on Capitol Hill as they run for safety for their lives. Um, feel free to dial in tonight, folks, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. And uh, this is something that really is important that we discuss. Uh, We'd like to believe that America has uh, times of peace. Uh, we haven't seen that in a long period of time. Uh, whether you're talking about violence in Chicago, uh, I, something, uh, and I'm trying to recall the exact story, that was the numbers were definitely elevated in the killings in Chicago on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, innocent people, uh, we've read stories of children being killed by stray bullets and drive-by uh, shooting. Uh, this is not only in Chicago, it's all over this country. How do we get back to peace? And then you have a national emergency on January 6th, uh, which takes place on the, on the nation's capital, and the violence as the entire world was watching. Um, we got some fixing to do without question. Uh, right now, we're going to be joined with our very special guest, Jody Evans. Uh, I gave a brief introduction about her. She's founder of Code Pink uh, and, and really a, an advocate for peace uh, in every sense of the word. We're going to hear from her and talk to her as well to get her perspective on the January 6th insurrection, what took place there, how does it mentally affect uh, people in this nation? Or do we wait and do we hold our breath that when is the next one coming? We got reason to we got reason to raise those questions because we the country is more divided more than it's ever been, uh, right down the middle, and they're divided on racial uh, on racial lines. Uh, so we're going to get into that discussion right now. Jody, are you with us? I am. Thank you for inviting me on. 
Thank you, Jody. We appreciate you coming on and, and being a part of our evening tonight. We will respect your time, whatever time that is uh, that you're able to give to this show. I don't know how much you've heard thus far, um, but we're, we're, talk, we're revisiting the insurrection, the violence, uh, and the, the extreme violence that took place that day and the number of people that gathered all across the country to be at our nation's capital and to see what we saw was, was heart-wrenching. Uh, and I'll let you introduce yourself if I haven't done adequate uh, introduction on exactly what you do. Uh, you can share that with our listeners now, and then we'll get into this dialogue together. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, as someone who's been arrested a hundred times um, at the Capitol and who, you know, they they put up a whole blockade against the 10,000 women that we had marching towards the, the White House to stop the Iraq war. Um, you know, when I've witnessed what happens to you just when you stand in peaceful protest and sing and then to see, you know, nothing in the way of the violence that was, you know, crushing on top of the Capitol and to listen to my, you know, friends who are members of Congress or that are in their offices and their desperation and their fear and the unknown and to hear what they heard outside of the doors and to think where, where, where was everyone? And, um, you know, for, for someone who peacefully protests and gets arrested all the time. And, you know, here, the, you know, this day that you invite me on, that would be the day that um, Ohio uh, Congressperson Joyce Beatty, who is the uh, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, would be arrested um, in, the Congress, in the Senate Heart Building, uh, protesting the Voting Rights Act, that, that, that the Senate will not let through and that, you know, Biden and Kamala Harris are not championing. And so a member of Congress walking peacefully in the Senate heart building, calling for the Senate to act on the Voting Rights Act, gets arrested. It's just, you know, it's profound and insane. Um, And yet, yet reflects back to us the country we live in. Because as someone who is an anti-war activist, I want to say that, you know, we, the United States of America, violates the rights of people of color around the world. We are starving to death people in Iran and Cuba and Venezuela with our sanctions. We right now are aggressing on China, a country of 1.5 billion people that are doing nothing to the United States. We are... um, just troops left Afghanistan are entering Yemen, where the United States bombs have been dropping on that for six years. We destroyed an entire country, Iraq, pretty much decimated Afghanistan. Uh, we drop, we have drones that go into remote places where no one could be any in any way endangering the United States of America and incinerate people's lives and villages. Um, you know, it was really interesting that the United States media decided to say, look at Cuba. There are people in the streets demanding their government feed them, but their government has has the the knee on its neck for the last 70 years of the United States, um, keeping starving the people to death, and they think it's their own government. And the U.S. media doesn't even report that it is the, 
the fault of the United States government that they don't have food or medicines or syringes for, uh, you know, to take the um, to take shots. I mean, and then they're blaming it on the the Cuban government. So the way the United States responds is with violence when it acts through its imperialism on other countries. And we're surprised when people inside of the United States act like imperialists. And, you know, let me just say that it wasn't so long ago that generals from the United States threatened the indigenous leader of Bolivia that if he did not leave the country, they would kill him. And they had already burned down the houses of his cabinet and um, kidnapped members of his cabinet. So, you know, when we, we're looking at the behavior in our own country of what we do to other countries. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to point that out, that it's, it is what the United States does to other countries. And, you know, we hear from some uh, police officers in D.C., well, we, we couldn't shoot because we were afraid, you know, well, basically what we're afraid to shoot at white people when um, no one, no cop seems to be afraid to shoot at black youth or black people in the street. I mean, it's, it is, it is un, unfortunately an undressing moment of the United States, and it's horrific. But, you know, so much of who the United States is and how we behave remains hidden from most people. And um, I know people in the United States were ashamed of what happened and embarrassed by what happened. And I wonder why they're not embarrassed every day for what is done with 65% of our tax dollars is to violate people around the world. It is why I'm a peace activist. And I, I, w- I was listening, um, waiting to get on, and I heard your commercial. Um, the, dr- the war I was trying to end before I came to Washington and called Code Pink to Bush's um, Code Red and Code Orange and Code Yellow that he was frightening the American people into war with was the drug war because yes. I had been working in Watts. I live in Los Angeles. I had been working in Watts with Akilah Shirelles. And I saw the violation, the racism of the drug war in the United States. And so um, joined with Ethan Nadelman in um, starting the Drug Policy Alliance. And I'm one of the founding board members. And the reason it was founded was to stop the racism of the drug, drug war. So that was the war I was trying to end before getting in the middle of trying to end all these wars that the United States has on other people of color around the world. But, um, you know... One of the reasons I ended up in D.C. and starting Code Pink was that I was working with gang members with Aquila, and one day said, you know, well, let's let's look at how all men are the same. And we went around the room and we had a governor and a billionaire and a famous football player and gang members. And we went around the room and talked about father. And I never realized that all their fathers had been in the war in Vietnam and that war had come home to their communities. And we, and then the next ad you had was about what happens when you go to war and how, you know, people are fodder for, I mean, Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush who never went to war, but they got to send innocent people into war to come back with PTSD. And then the whole country gets set into a PTSD by what happens on January 6th. 
this has to end. And it could pink. We say we're not going to end war until we end the war economy. That the war economy is extractive and destructive and oppressive, and war just serves the war economy. And 65% of your tax dollars goes to serve the rich, it goes to serve the corporations, and it does nothing for you. It does not make you safer, it makes you less safe, it makes the, us more hated, and, um, and it's really like taking your hard-earned money and, and incinerating it. Because it really incinerates the planet that you live on, that um, you count on for air and water and food. Um, so we need to return to a peace economy, um, which is something that, you know, indigenous and um, poor people know well, because it's something you need to live with, which is that we live connected to each other, that we're here to care for each other. And we saw that a lot in COVID, that what is essential is those people that grow the food and feed us and those people who take care of us and those people who teach us and the war economy devalues what is really what gives us life and you know the the u.s the strategies and the votes that come out of the u.s congress and senate are are votes that don't uh, create conditions conducive for life they're they're votes that steal life from us and they you know shame on them that take they take all this money and invested in war when it needs to be invested in healthcare and our communities and housing and jobs and life. So, no, um, I agree. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, there seems to be a culture shaping. If you know anything about culture, it is one of the most difficult uh, chains, if you will, to break once instituted in society. It just is difficult because people become habitually uh, uh, behaving badly, so to speak, that uh, these things that you see, um, and I think the embarrassment for the United States, uh, if you have a disruptive system as we have, um, and these type of things happening to the enemies of the United States, uh, you open the door wide open because the United States stands at a point of vulnerability. That vulnerability can be easily attacked. If citizens in the country can come together uh, and do and uh, cause havoc that January 6th did, what, about, what do you think about these countries that are waiting for the opportunity uh, for whatever reason to attack the United States or to set things in motion uh, for the United States, that would be if, if I'm a, if I'm a citizen, that would be very troubling to me. Uh, Demetrius, you had a comment. Yeah, I had a comment for you, uh, Jody, in regards to you mentioned that you've marched uh, several times and protested in D.C. What are your thoughts? Is and you alluded to it earlier, but I wanted to get your thoughts on if that was uh, a, a BLM uh, protest or uh, Muslim Americans marching, or excuse me, what if Muslims overtook? Uh, the Capitol. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, you mean if that would have happened? I, you know, tweeted that on January 6th. There would have been people would have been dead, and that wouldn't, you know, it would people. Everyone would have been in jail in a minute, and probably a few dead. Um, it, the the racism of what happened on January 6th was apparent to all. Um, that uh, that the police would step back. And allow that to happen with, you know, a basically white um, a mob um, 
uh, you know, Reverend Barber uh, says that um, just to remind you, the populism is the KKK. And um, we have populist uprising in the United States because the Senate and the Congress have failed the people. And um, they've failed all the people. They've been serving the rich. They've been serving the banks. They've been serving the corporations. Um, and so, you know, populism, when it gets angry, um, exposes an underbelly. And it's, it is a culture. And it's a culture that we, um, as people in the United States, have continued to allow. It's like allowing monuments to um, to racism to stay up, basically. Um, that um, that you know has been there and has continued. And and in this struggle that we're all in to reveal that, you're going to see the a, the angry underbelly uh, respond. But we have to all stay strong. We have to all stay in committed to the dignity of all people, to the equality of all people we need to take for equity. We're way behind in, in equity and fairness for, for many people um, in the United States of America, even though they pretend um, something else. And I, I think that congresswoman today that got arrested, she says, I'm making good trouble today. And right now, I mean, there's a lot of us that need to be making good trouble. And I, I, feel, I feel a little sad that there are people feel a little fragile about making good trouble right now. I've, I've heard it out of the many people that, oh, we can't make trouble because we, oh, my God, the election's in 2022. And I'm like, if you don't make some good trouble, we're going to lose the elections in 2022. I mean, you know, if, if we don't think that they they rile up their base by making trouble. Our base gets riled up by being, by remembering, by being inspired, by being infused by. It's why that Congresswoman got arrested today. It's why I'm going to, um, to Washington on Monday with Reverend Barber, um, with a hundred other women to, you know, put our bodies on the line. That the fact that we can be in 2021 and still battling over a Voting Rights Act is shameful, shameful. Right. Or the, I mean, first of all, we don't live in a democracy, um, but we should at least have the right to vote. You know, you can't live, you can't say we live in a democracy when all the um, journalism and all the press is owned by billionaires. That's not a democracy. You can't say that it's a democracy when four trillion dollars is spent on a freaking election. Who do you think owns the people that won? The rich. That's, you know, that's all that can happen. That's just like, that's a whole, that's a whole machine of who sure. gets to own the, the system. But that doesn't well, mean everyone shouldn't have a right to vote. And that, that this much right. later, we're still fighting for voting rights is insane. So, um, you know, I, I like I said, I've been arrested a hundred times in D.C., and um, I, I have a beautiful story of um, back in um, right before the U.S. went to war in Iraq. Um, we had 10,000 women, you know, marching to the White House. They put up a big phalanx of cops to keep us far away from the White House. I don't know why they were so afraid of peaceful women. But um, we got to the White House, and we had many of the famous women right at the front, and Alice Walker was there. And um, 
and she started singing as we as we got to the phalanx of cops and they were holding their arms and you know not letting us through and then one black cop let go and let us through and he said you know I just can't go home to my wife tonight and tell her I kept Alice Walker out of the White House. And then, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so, um, and it was a peaceful demonstration of, you know, like no war and everyone was arrested, um, including Alice Walker outside yeah, the peaceful, White House. Uh, peacefully singing, peacefully singing. Um, well, Alice look. talking about how her ancestors' slaves had built that White House, right? Um, and right. that you know, and so it's you know the most important thing. And I'm so grateful for your show, and I'm so grateful to know about it. Thank you for what you stand for and what you speak yeah. about. Justice is something we, that you know is our, we we owe our breath to every day. And so it's just a reminder to everyone: is right now. Um, we, we all need to be speaking up. We all need to be fighting for the dignity and rights of all people. And as this struggle for the Voting Rights Act is happening, and, you know, with um, an African-American um, in the White House as vice president calling on her to speak out, she's got that extra vote and at least has to show up to show there's 51 and not 50-50. Um, right. You know, that um, Congressman Clyburn, I know, has called on her. I know many leaders have called on her. There were many amazing women who got arrested with the congresswoman today. But, um, you know, it's, it's we have to put our bodies on the line. I just came from line three up in Minnesota where um, the, the sheriff's, you know, infiltrated where – Indigenous people had bought the land so they could be protesting line three that is taking away their their economic rights. You know, uh, Winona LaDuke calls it wild rice economics, where they're actually able to live off the land and live off the wild rice. And the drilling of this pipeline is going to destroy the economics of a whole people. And, right. and the sheriffs think they can just go on private land and arrest people because well, private property only matters if you're a white person. You know, well, I'll tell you so, this. I'll tell you this to add to that. Um, that's not surprising, given that officers, not all officers, cops and the culture in America right now is what it is on the streets of America. It doesn't matter whether you're on your private property, whether you're in on you know, on the streets of America, uh, whether you're getting a traffic shot, whatever it is, they this attitude of bullying really uh, has taken over in a, in a very, very big way. Jody, what I'm going to do, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a clip, a couple of clips. And, and uh, Senator Raskin made a heartfelt plea on the floor. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I'm going to play that again for our listeners, and we're going to get your thoughts on it. Do you still have time to stay with us? Sure, I'll stay with you. Okay, we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. Uh, we're being joined by co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans, uh, a true peace advocate, doing some things to make a difference. And uh, she's had her share. Her resume is loaded with arrest for protesting peacefully. Uh, somebody that's on the front lines has a lot to say. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Police officer 
who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. I wanted to be in the military since I was a, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. you got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well. Because they're not here with their families. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people 
than the federal government, with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone. But the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. Two part-time jobs and to help my parents pay the bills. Any problem-solving skills? I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. and gentlemen to HAC Radio tonight as we have been dealing with January 6th, the insurrection that shook a nation uh, and really sent tremors all around the world as a result of those acts uh, of misconduct on the nation's capital. Uh, We're looking back to take a look at, man, the impact of this, the impact of these types of actions cannot be tolerated. And as a nation, we have to be prepared for situations like that. In this particular case, uh, we're not prepared in spite of the warning signs that pointed to it. Uh, We've been joined tonight by Jody Evans, who's been given her perspective as a peaceful advocate, uh, talking about what we need to do as a nation to change. Um, This conversation has been going on for many, many years. Uh, Who's going to implement these changes? And Protesters, uh, peaceful protesters, uh, have been targeted uh, without question in the last few years uh, just to silence uh, people speaking out against some of these issues. Should not be. Um, 
Martin Luther King made the statement that he read somewhere, we have the right to protest. And we have a right to do that against any type of injustice uh, that happens. And uh, there's a lot of things that uh, the United States has set out to lead as far as peace, but we find in our own backyard, uh, in law enforcement, and in, in those that choose to abuse law enforcement uh, and use the, uh, abuse the badge and whatever you call it, um, we've run into some serious problems. And uh, Jody has uh, given some insight to that, and we appreciate it. Jody, you still with us? Jody, I'm there? here. Thank you. Yes. Okay, I'm getting ready to play the clip I told you about regarding uh, Senator Raskin. I thought uh, our listeners need to rehear that. It's been uh, since January since that happened. But uh, man, what a what a troubling situation for humanity. Uh, yeah, for the country, but for people to be shook to that level uh, by its own citizens is is very very alarming. Let's play the clip, and Jody, let me get your thoughts on the other side of that clip. My youngest daughter, Tabitha, was there with me on Wednesday, January 6th. It was the day after we buried her brother, our son, Tommy, the saddest day of our lives. Also, there was my son-in-law, Hank, who's married to our oldest daughter, Hannah, and I consider him a son, too. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram, the most haunting sound I ever heard, and I will never forget it. My chief of staff, Julie Tagan, was with Tabitha and Hank locked and barricaded in that office, the kids hiding under the desk, placing what they thought were their final texts and whispered phone calls to say their goodbyes. They thought they were going to die. But I hugged them, and I apologized, and I told my daughter, Tabitha, who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. <laughs> of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day, and since then, that one hit me the hardest. That and watching someone use an American flagpole, the flag still on it, to spear and pummel one of our police officers ruthlessly, mercilessly, tortured by a pole with a flag on it that he was defending with his very life. People died that day. Officers ended up with head damage and brain damage. People's eyes were gouged. Officer had a heart attack. Officer lost three fingers that day. Two officers have taken their own lives. 
senators, this cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government and our institutions because they refuse to accept the will of the people under the Constitution of the United States. There you have it. Very heart-wrenching um, words from Senator Congressman Raskin. Uh, very troubling, Samson. When you hear that, uh, and Jody, I'm coming to your comments here in a moment, but Samson, when you hear that, he states that he just, the day before, did I hear that right? The, the day, day before, before yep. he had just buried his son. I mean, the, I mean you, you hear yeah, no, his that. Son, his son died on December 30th, his, and yeah, they had just buried his, his, their son. Yeah, his son, yeah. So you can imagine going back. Go ahead, Samson. Uh, it, it, you can, I mean, he, he heard him describe it. It was literally the worst day of their life. They had to bury their son. And then the next day, the remainder of his family, his children, they're terrorized by what somebody, I believe, earlier in the broadcast would describe them accurately, domestic terrorists. These were not people, you know, peacefully, peacefully processing. They're not. They were domestic terrorists. They have pipe bombs in the DNC, in the RNC, setting off explosives maiming injuring you know causing permanent damage to their fellow citizens they're not taking any of that into consideration so to hear this representative you it's not just for his family that he you can hear it pouring out that pouring out in his voice you can hear that he is in a state of a state of shock and disbelief and horror at what our country has honestly devolved into this is not a state of where, you know, we, we have a democratic republic anymore. This is what, what you see in third world country coups. Well, uh, I've had the privilege of meeting uh, Congressman Raskin mm -hmm. on, on one of our many trips to D.C. Uh, seems to, to me, my impression of, Senate, of Congressman Raskin was a very humble individual, a, a very decent man, uh, and you couldn't find one probably better to head that committee to look for answers that this. So, look, you may or may not agree with what Congress does on a day-in and day-out basis. You may not. This type of behavior is unacceptable. We don't become judge, jury, executioner. That's not what we do. Those lives, and I can only imagine uh, in Congressman Raskin's mind – after burying his son, that am I going to die here today? I mean, that's horrific. That's hard to hold another level. Jody, your thoughts on that? Well, yes, I've known um, Jamie since he was a young man. Um, I'm on the board of the Institute for Policy Studies that his dad founded. And you are so right. I mean, a servant of the vision of what the U.S. can be and a, and a constitutional rights lawyer who really his whole life has fought for what the U.S. should be. And, um, and you know, his daughter and son-in-law were with him because they wanted to take care of him. You know, he, he said he needed to go to work, and they went with him because they wanted to be there with him, you know, having – been through so much already and then for that to happen 
And, and, you know, this is a man who literally has given his life for the fight for the ideals um, yes. and to keep fighting. No, um, no so, yeah. Yeah, and then that was my impression of, of, of the congressman. Um, um, and I think, I think maybe we may have met with him more than once out there, but his, his staff uh, him, and himself were very gracious to us. Um, and actually, just ladies and gentlemen, so you know, uh, the, the congressman wanted to be on the show tonight. The schedule didn't make room for it. Uh, he says he enjoys listening to AJC Radio and to our shows. Uh, he's, I know in August, uh, the Congress takes a, a summer break. Uh, he offered to come on and follow up uh, with us. So our hats off to the congressman for that and his willingness to, to actually do that. Um, this is this is this is something you got to talk about. Uh, go ahead, Dennis. And, and we can't sweep this under the rug. We can't make this disappear. We need to. This needs to stay in the in the light because no matter how you look at it, if there's no if there's no consequences or if nothing happens, you know, for this insurrection, it's going to happen again. Only on the opposite side, because it's like this, if, if Republicans can do it or, you know, and I can't call them all Republicans, but I would assume they were. But if they can do it because they felt there, there was a, a, a injustice uh, in the voting procedures, then we could, do the, we could do the same thing. And so now we have this, this, if we don't do something, if we don't show America that you cannot do this. I don't care how angry you are or upset with the results you are to attack the Capitol. You're going to, there's a consequence. Well, here's what's bizarre is that in the history of the country, we've never seen it. And we've had elections where they were close to call. We've never seen people in uprising like this over the years. I'm 52 years old. And all of the time I've been here, I've never seen it. And we've had some very serious presidential elections that people disagreed on. But you have to keep some in mind, uh, Lamont, the, the moral degradation that has taken place in this country uh, and the divisiveness of politics. Like you said, from a political perspective, I don't lean either way. I see politics for what it is. This is the... Uh, the, quite frankly, the practice of politics is disgusting. Uh, when you watch <laughs> it on a day, on a day to day basis, uh, it's a pot and kettle uh, game where each party uh, tries to one up the other party. Uh, when they're in the same position, either prior or after, they're trying to one up the other party and trying to take the moral high ground when neither one of them have the moral high ground. That's the sad reality of our of our politics these days, and. Uh, as I said earlier, the rhetoric has become so divisive until uh, you can't quit demeaning one party, can't demean the people in another party and vice versa. This stuff is going back and forth, and each party is going to stoke, uh, yeah. stoke, stoke the flames, if you will, of, of uh, that this other party is demeaning them, and they're saying you're this way in rural America. They're saying the city people are like this. It's just a, a very disgusting practice. And 
people know it's a disgusting practice. They watch it every day. They have to know. But if this continues, these type of incidents, even in uh, BL, some of the BLM protests, you get uh, certain bad actors that hijack those protests and those people are out there uh, fighting for uh, fighting for a just cause. Uh, and then vice versa, if some of these people felt they were disenfranchised somehow or their votes didn't count, they can go protest, but violence never solved anything. And so now you got this tit-for-tat violence that's going on on both sides. Uh, and if it doesn't stop, all it can do is get is get worse. And, 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 and that, that's a sad commentary for this country. Well, definitely. So, Jody, your thoughts? Well, I wanted to say preach. You said um, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, you know, it's, but the whole, um, culture, I want to go back to the word culture, the whole culture that we're encased in is violent. And so, um, it's not about Democrat and Republican. It's just like at the core, what has played out from the very beginning is violence. And, um, and it's really got to be up to all of us, A, to not stand for it, you know, but B, to recognize, I, you know, I, I take, um, you know, it's when you said it's, it's moral degradation, it's that we don't have values anymore. We really, the values have been stripped. And, um, you know, at Code Pink, we say there's a war economy, the extracted destructive, oppressive economy that is killing us, our communities, and the planet. And then there's a peace economy that is the giving, sharing, caring, thriving, relational economy without which none of us are alive. And um, we need to recognize where, you know, and, and I would say this is where mostly white people have just fully embodied the war economy. And, you know, the, the war economy is um, what makes us feel alienated. It's what um, makes us feel there's scarcity instead of abundance. It's, it's, a, it's an intoxicating prison of our minds and our souls and our hearts that is what, you know, people are, are locked in. And, you know, to be locked inside of that level of lacking of life, people are going to you know, react in different ways. So if their discomfort is then pulled in by these other people that say, I give you permission to be violent, that violence is going to itself. Instead of how do we find ways to live together? Because if we don't find ways to live together, we're all over. I mean, right now, the United States is aggressing on China with nuclear weapons. Four nuclear bombs fall and the whole world is over because we're in a nuclear winter and there will be no food. So, you know, we're playing at every level with matches that burn the whole thing up. Our behavior around the planet with the ocean on fire, with, you know, forest fires like that start now earlier and earlier in the year with devastating, you know, freezes of Texas. And we're in a, a, a climate chaos that we're not going to be able to stop. And no, so one I, of the I, things we say with a peace economy is no matter what, I, I look at it like the flood and every, every culture has a flood story. 
There is a flood coming. You can't have this level of global inequality. $1.4 trillion worth of weapons sold every year and global climate change without having to learn how to live together. And we all must be learning to live together, learning to live in relationship with each other, learning not to be alienated from each other, but not like we need to make other people do it. We, each of us, need to turn to our community and start cultivating peace. All You know, if we all take part of, I spend half of my life throwing myself at the machine and trying to stop it, and half of my life cultivating peace, relating to my community, finding ways that we can grow food and feed each other. It could pink, we like have gardens and we plant seeds of peace and we feed each other. What is it to be related? Because these big problems, the way we solve them is locally. The way we engage with each other is next door neighbor to next door neighbor. And we've let these big problems distract us from what it is to be human, what it is to be related, what it is to be in kindness, in love, in um, the sharing and caring, um, even as the war economy tries to oppress us. And we're going to have to each one of us do it to each other and with each other because yes you can look out of what happened at the capitol as i say to our you know code pink activists we can look at the war in syria and yemen and i have to say to them you didn't stop that you didn't start that war you're not going to be able to stop it you're going to be able to get into the work you know you can throw yourself at the workings of congress which we used to do every day code pink would disrupt a congressional hearing every day you're not even allowed in hearings anymore there's no way to throw yourself at the machine very often these days. So, no, I mean, I, I think if you're, to, if you're not throwing yourself at, you know, nonviolent activism is to show up in the middle of violence and say no. Right. And that's what a nonviolent activist does. That's what Martin Luther King did. That's what Gandhi did. Whenever we are invited into that moment, we should show up. And the rest of the time, how do we cultivate peace? How do we create strength locally? Because we all need to be doing that. There are, you know, floods coming and we need to be able to be in relationship with each other and learn how to care for each other. Listen, uh, I agree 100 percent that uh, until, excuse me, until we are able to treat each other as human beings, uh, you're never going to get anywhere. And when the culture becomes an issue uh, where this begins, this begin, this behavior begins to be embedded in our society. We got, we're going to have some, as as uh, Jody you alluded to, we're going to have some serious problems. I want to give an opportunity uh, now for our for our uh, staff. Uh, we're going to be respectful of your time tonight, Jody. You've, I think you've added a lot of perspective uh, to our discussion. I, I'd like to give you uh, an invitation. Uh, I w- I'd like to hear more about what you're doing out there. We'll definitely be in touch offline as we get ready to go to, our, uh, I believe, our final segment of the show as we take a break. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add, how people can get a t- in touch with you? Uh, you said this march is happening on Monday uh, in D.C., yeah, is that so correct? Yeah, if you want to learn more, um, you can go to codepink.org. Uh, the Action Monday is in our action calendar. Um, but, you know, I just encourage everyone to remember that this life, this precious life we have is a gift. And that we're all creating the future together. And just think about your day and what you offer. And may it nourish the future. And um, 
And so, you know, I'm deeply grateful for what you do with this show. I'm very honored to have been invited on, and I look forward to continuing conversations. Peace yes. and love. Thank you. Okay, we're honored to have you as well, Jody. Uh, be safe out there, and uh, again, we'll be in touch offline on the events and how they develop uh, Monday with that uh, with that protest out there. Thank you so very much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Jody Evans, uh, co-founder of Code Pink, uh, advocate uh, for peace, uh, not only dealing with the January 6th insurrection, uh, but definitely giving some insight to that. Uh, and the culture problem that we talk about every day on this show, every week on this show, uh, culture is can be very damaging or can be very rewarding. Uh, we're on the other end of that right now, which is the damaging part. So, again, we appreciate her for coming on out of her busy schedule as, as she seeks uh, as an advocate to see, bring some solutions uh, to our, our growing problems here in this nation. Uh, this is AJC Radio. We're going to be right back again discussing January 6th. Where are we? Where have we come? Uh, how in the world do we go forward with a nation divided along racial lines? This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you, for not looking away and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked on. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun, blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. He's interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. 
After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time to fear justice. It's time to smart justice. And we need your help. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm gonna give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call one 855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can have a value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? 
You can remember that it worked. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we have, again, find ourselves uh, back up against the clock that quickly and having discussions uh, regarding as we revisit January 6th and take a look back and reflect uh, on the violence that broke out in this country uh, that was absolutely horrific. Uh, The Congressman Raskin, uh, who gave his heartfelt uh, speech on the floor, uh, after losing his son uh, and faced with death uh, the next day after burying his own son. Uh, th- this is beyond uh, cruelty and what took place. Nothing was taken into consideration other than a slanted view uh, of an election that proved to be fair and that President Biden won fair uh, and square uh, there's just no, there's no argument there. Uh, any irregular, uh, uh, irregular behavior in voting for this, for this election, uh, you're going to have that, but not enough to flip an election. It just wasn't enough. Uh, do we have voter fraud? Absolutely, we have it. Uh, it's, it's in every election since we have voted. Um, but again, uh, this, this brought some havoc that uh, this country should have never been in, this, in, the, in the middle of days of polo. Well, one of the things we had talked about is that we are in a, a time where people are just embracing violence. And when you look at some of the people that participated in this riot, you can see that. I mean, one of the things that really surprised me is the executives that were there that got arrested. Then you have an NYPD officer that attacked other officers. I mean, if he was attacking regular people, you could see it. You see officers doing that all the time. But no, he was a retired NYPD officer who attacked the Capitol Police officers with a flagpole. How do you do that? How do you go after somebody that you know what they do? And it, it was just something that you look at and you see the insanity of what happened on that day. No, no, without question, uh, those are things that are... Again, this is why we're having the discussion tonight. This is abnormal behavior as we saw it. Uh, should have never reached that level. Should have never done it. Uh, we're going to play a clip now looking back inside the Capitol Hill riot. Let's play the clip. Uh, 
And now to an ABC News exclusive. Capitol Hill police officer Harry Dunn, the first to speak out publicly, gives his chilling account of what happened on January 6th as he fought off that violent mob, some yelling racial slurs. And just a reminder that he speaks only for himself and not for his department. Here's ABC's Pierre Thomas. There were so many calls on the radio. Priority, help, help. Somebody's trapped. We need help. Shots fired. When Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn went to work on the morning of January 6th, it felt like a normal day. What's the first moment did you begin to get a sense that something is off kilter here? We were told to uh, get helmets, riot helmets. Uh, that was new. But no sense that all hell could break loose. Correct. Correct. Then the 13-year veteran seen here watches the crowd of thousands closed in on the east side of the Capitol. You just see a sea of people, Trump flags, Confederate flags, thin blue line flags, don't tread on me flags. And then you look down and you see officers fighting, giving people pepper spray, smoke grenades, gas grenades, pepper balls, being thrown by everybody, flashbangs. We fought with these people who were prepared for a fight. They had on gas masks, they had on body armor, they had on two-way radios, they had on tactical gear, bulletproof vests. They were ready to go. When you see that level of preparedness, did that surprise you? Did it scare you? I was scared. I was absolutely scared. I'm on this platform. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot seven. I'm this giant person. And we had our guns out, and I'm thinking, all these people out there, they're armed, too. And I'm like, I'm going to get shot. They're going to take me out. I remember at one point I said, how is this going to end? Did you think about your daughter at, at some point during the fight? Did that give you some inspiration to keep doing what you were doing? Absolutely. I never imagined, besides the fact when I was walking on that stage and I had that moment where I'm going to get shot, I... I didn't have a, a moment that said, I'm not going to make it home. Eventually, the mob forced its way inside the Capitol building. Officer Dunn confronting a group carrying a Blue Lives Matter flag. I said, we got dozens of officers down. We got dozens of officers down. And you got the nerve to be holding a Blue Lives Matter flag. I thought they were going to have a moment where they, they came to and they realized, like, yo, what are we doing? Like, they instantly snapped out of it, and they said, nah, we're doing this for you. We're doing this for you. And as one of the guys kept walking by, the other one pulled out his badge and said, trust me, I understand. We're doing this for you, buddy. And he's got a badge. He showed me his badge. What did you think? A fellow officer's in the You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. They believed in their mind that they were right. So I believe that makes them even more dangerous because we were telling them and we were making them and we were fighting them, telling them to get out. They called us traitors. Your job is to survive, protect people, and protect yourself. Right. I remember I said to MPD a couple of times, a couple of officers, as we're flushing each other's eyes out because they're soaked with pepper spray, protect yourself. Protect yourself, guys. There are way too many people. We are outnumbered. You're fighting. You got white officers helping. You got 
black officers help them. And at that point, it don't matter. Yeah, You're man. just in it together. Mm -hmm. Exhausted, Officer Dunn tried reasoning with a large group of protesters approaching a hallway he was guarding. I literally told them, if they want to get through here, you got to go through me. And they didn't. They just started talking to me. They were saying how Joe Biden did not win the election and nobody voted for him. So I took the bait and I, okay, what about me? I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? This is when Officer Dunn encountered a couple in the crowd who began hurling the most vile of racial slurs at him, a black officer. And his girlfriend, she had on a pink MAGA shirt. He said, hey, this voted for Joe Biden, guys. Hey, everybody, this voted for Joe Biden. They said, So the crowd joined Everybody. With everybody joined in with him. Real talk. When it registered you what had been said to you, you're a law enforcement officer. You're in the Capitol defending the Capitol. And somehow race seeped into that, too. Everybody wants to say that it was about politics and everything. But it was a large number of people in that crowd that were racist. There are two images that I've been thinking about. One is, we mentioned John Lewis, who was a man of great integrity. We all revere him. And you had an experience regarding that iconic figure. What happened with that? Outside of Benny Hoyer's office in the Capitol, it's a tribute to John Lewis to stand with a poster. That mural was destroyed. They ripped it in half once. They picked it up and they ripped it again and again, and it was in pieces. It was deliberate. The American flag stayed up, but that mural to John Lewis was destroyed. And you can't tell me that that isn't racism. You cannot tell me that. Did the people who were there tell you why they were there? We're stopping the steal. According to them, they were doing it for us. They were doing us a favor. According to those terrorists, you're very precise. You use the word terrorist. Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't just a mob or a bunch of thugs, you know. It, they were terrorists. They tried to disrupt this country's democracy. That was their goal. And you know what? Y'all failed. But five people lost their lives that day, including Capitol Police Officer Brian Sickman. After the Capitol had been cleared, Officer Dunn had his first chance to reflect on what he had witnessed. Fire extinguishers have been going off. The floors are covered in white dust. It's just a cloud of smoke, water bottles, broken flagpoles. Everything in the rotunda just laying there on the floor. The rotunda. The, the rotunda. The pinnacle of the, the democracy. American democracy. And all this stuff is there. And I sat down with a good friend of mine. And uh, I looked at him. I said, what the hell happened? I just started to cry. Just all these, everything that happened just hit me at once. And I told him, I had called a 
couple dozen times today protecting this building. Is this America? They beat police officers with Blue Lives Matter flags. They fought us. They had Confederate flags in the U.S. Capitol. They stormed the Speaker's office. They went through their sensitive documents. They were trying to assassinate the Vice President in the Capitol. What's the gamut of emotion? I got angry. I got sad. I got hurt. Even just during this interview, I'm getting angry now. But I don't mind talking about it, and that's how I get through it. In the days following the insurrection, we all felt like we had each other's back even more. When you go through something that traumatic, nobody knows what you've been through except the people that went through it with you. And even then, they don't fully know because a lot of my white officer co-workers, they didn't call, get called a So we all fought the same battles, but they were different. Dunn has nothing but praise for his fellow officers, including Eugene Goodman, who was seen on camera shielding the unguarded Senate floor and directing Senator Mitt Romney away from that mob of protesters. Eugene Goodman. <laughs> Eugene. Tell us about Eugene Goodman. Good dude. Good dude. Um, humble guy. Funny guy. Great person to work with. Great person to be around. You weren't surprised that he acted the way he acted? Not at all. There were dozens of Eugene Goodmans that day. Dozens. Eugene got caught on camera, and I'm not surprised that he did the right thing, the brave thing, the heroic thing. He deserves everything that he's getting. But there were so many Eugene Goodmans that weren't caught on camera that day, and I'm proud to work with them. A lot of officers there have not gotten their due recognition. Such a powerful interview. For more now, let's bring in our Pierre Thomas. And Pierre, Officer Dunn's words were quoted during Trump's recent impeachment trial, but at the time, they were anonymous. They were indeed. He was the mystery officer. After thinking about this quite some time, Lindsay, he finally decided that he wanted to go forward. He got approval from his department, and he told a story that still breaks his heart. He's still angered by it. But he believes that the world needs to know what truly went on inside that building. Yeah, heartbreaking indeed. And Pierre Officer Dunn is the first Capitol Hill police officer to speak publicly using his name. This has got to be tough for all the officers on the front lines. They're still healing, Lindsay. And he made it clear that every day he thinks about this in some fashion. Uh, this is something that he has to live with. And also something that he believes that the country eventually is going to have to come to grips with. Lindsay. Pierre Thomas. Our thanks to you. Thank you. And you can catch more of this interview on ABC's primetime series, Soul of the Nation, airing on ABC Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, starting in March. Well, there you have it. Um, officer in true travail uh, for what he witnessed the racial slurs that came to that officer as he was protecting the Capitol. Uh, he said it went through a lot of emotions, some tears, some anger. And, and someone made the statement, yeah, this uh, it's expletive, N-word, uh, voted for Biden. And said, and really engaged the crowd to become louder uh, in aggression 
against him simply as an African-American that he voted for Joe Biden. Dave? And every week we do a segment where we talk about officers that are heroes. Well, these officers here on that day were heroes because they, they could have stepped aside and just let everything happen. And no, they didn't. They, they turned around and they, let, they fought against these people to prevent them from attacking the, um, the, the people in Congress and the floor of Congress. Oh, absolutely right. Um, it, 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 this thing impacted people more than we, uh, than we uh, ever anticipated that, they would, that it would do. Um, it's one of those things that you can't hide from. Um, and it's one of those things that in spite of everything, you know, people as a, as a normal nature of people like to say, okay, that's over with. Let's move on to something else positive, but you can't leave it uh, because it happened right here. And the lives that were affected and the Capitol Police officers that died uh, as a result of this type of action, uh, you have to deal with it. And what brought us there? How do we avoid from going there? I said on this show moments uh, a little while ago that if there's no change in behavior, uh, we're going to see it again. Because people become more aggressive. Uh, if they say, well, these, this group of folks did it, then we can do it. Quench, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just looking at this uh, Gadsden flag, don't tread on me, and looking at some of the history of it. No doubt these people uh, in the insurrection, that's what I call it, uh, felt um, marginalized. It felt like, uh, you know, you're doing something against me and I'm fighting for my rights. Don't tread on me. It's, it's the thing, uh, the American Revolutionary War. And like you said, uh, this this very much an indication that it's going to happen again. Uh, and they feel like they have the right to rise up and overthrow the government well, and wave the don't tread on me flag because it's in our Constitution. If we don't like what's going on, don't accept it. You know, we we, we protect and defend our country against all, all – uh, you know, threats, both foreign and domestic, rise up and overthrow the nation if we don't like it. Well, the problem you have is that man's individual perception is his individual reality. Right. So if I believe this to be, a man's belief is, is life and death. Right. If I believe it, then what I've done to get up, that's why they're so calm in responding. Mm -hmm. we, we're taking our nation back. We made history that we made day. History that day to say we will stand again. It's 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 an individual's perception of reality to himself. Right. That is the danger of it because once I believe that to be, that is how you gather that many people uh, as one body. Right. And technically, is a modern day mob that. Uh, Always comes with dire consequences when you're dealing with a mob uprising. Yeah, in and, any situation. And to the rest no of the world, it's a, it's an attempted coup d'état. They call it. Yes. In America. Yes. Very very troubling, William. You know, um, as you were saying that, I mean, I, I'm I'm having I'm, I've struggled with the fact that they have not just defined this as domestic terrorists. 
You know, I, I, that's the problem that I have. People have minimized it. If you look on social media, they minimize it. They minimize the role uh, that led to it, what fed it. But the bottom line is they were there that day to overturn the confirmation of the presidential election. That's why they were there. there were, I mean, it wasn't any other day. That was what was going on that day. And so when you look at that, they were there to undermine our democratic process. The 70, what, 75 million people, and I think a total of, what, 150 million people that voted, they were just there to undermine that. They didn't like the results, so they were there to take it by force. And, and to Dennis's point, there has to be a level of accountability because we were, you know, we, if you look at this and you, it through, I don't care what lens you look at it. They were there. These people, the officer Dunn, when he's talking about protecting, protecting the Capitol, I mean, from what? That's what he's there to do. But the, the terrorists, that's what I'm saying. The terrorists actions and we there got there's got to be some somebody's got to answer for it i guess that's just all i want to say no no, no without question good point made uh, we're going to turn the page as dave reminded us of our heroes officer heroes that honor the badge and acts of heroism uh in our community uh and in communities all across this country uh we're going to go to that now um and we got two stories to share something uh, share your story as we go to the our heroes moment for officers that honor the badge. Absolutely. So the the one that I have here in front of me, and just reading through it, and it actually it tells, uh, but it just happened uh, this past Fourth of July weekend in uh, Toledo, Ohio, um, where officers arrived on the scene. It says Chief George Crawl's body cam footage shows a crowd of 300 or more people uh, at you know a Fourth of July block party, but they're running towards the sound of gunfire they they're running through a hail of bullets they're running through all these things directing people trying to identify the gunman versus who's who the victims uh, who's innocent people and they do so in such a manner you know um just reading uh uh again the the article here how they're doing everything they can in split seconds. They're, they've got women. It says a woman is screaming. Somebody got shot. Cops are screaming. Everybody stay down. Find cover. Uh, there were 12 people that were actually injured uh, in this whole thing with one uh, one unfortunate um, victim, 17-year-old Stefan Johnson, who was a senior at Glass City Academy. He was airlifted to the hospital. They got him out of there, but he wound up dying from his wounds. But you see this entire crowd of officers running into situations that, you know, most people, you hear gunfire, you run the other way. These officers are running into a crowd because there's only like maybe one or two bad actors in this group of 300 people that are trying to cause harm. They're running in there because that's their fellow citizens. These are the people that they are sworn to serve, to protect. And they, and they, I mean, they wound up saving 299 lives. That and, night. and we honor those officers that honor their badge, uh, that became really modern-day heroes. And we got plenty of them on the streets uh, every day. Uh, my story comes uh, from a title, Hero Cops Hailed After Tackling Crazed Axeman in Braintree. It says, police officers who detained an axe-wielding man who wanted to kill his wife and children have been celebrated for their bravery on the front line. PC Lisa Vaughn Jones, PC Emma McIntyre, and Major PC John Parkin, Sergeant Paul Branding, and Sergeant Paul Drowns were called to a house in Braintree 
the force had received reports of a man who was making threats against his family, and upon arrival, officers found the situation had greatly escalated. P.C. Von Jones said, I was acting sergeant that day, and the call came in to say a man was armed with an axe and wanted to kill his wife and children. Our concern was getting the children out of the house, and we were just desperately trying to get the axe off him. It was clear that he was heightened manic state and didn't, rest any, didn't trust any of us to help him. The man's wife and one of their children were located outside the property, but the man was hanging out of an upstairs window, brandishing an axe and making threats. Three children remained in the house with him. Uh, so P.C. Von Jones tried to negotiate with the man while McIntyre and, and uh, Major and Parking climbed into the back garden. Shockingly, the man that, that then appeared at the back door holding a knife to his young son and then his own throat. Much to the officer's horror, when he brought the son down in his arms and held the knife against his throat, that's when your heart sinks, said P.C. Parkin, who had just completed his training. P.C. McIntyre added, you forget about your own safety at that moment and your priority becomes the children and making sure they get out safely. With the pressure of the situation intensifying, Sergeant Brady and Sergeant Downs decided to bravely force entry to the house before tasering the man. In the face of danger, the officers bravely and calmness kept those young children safe. This was fantastic work policing at its best. Uh, that, is, that is who we call heroes that wear the badge. Very special thanks to those officers uh, who, who, who really put their lives on the line and that the son could have easily been killed. Uh, uh, the uh, suspect could have easily taken his own life. Uh, so let me, let, me, let me remind us again this, and to our listeners and to all that hear us, uh, those are stories we have to tell during our new segment, Heroes That Honor the Badge, um, and those that take time. We have plenty of them. If we could get more stories and more people out here doing the right thing, per just perhaps, uh, it will institute change in our society and in our culture and our trust for officers. Those officers, uh, again, honored the badge and did what they need to do and ultimately saved the lives of a lot of people. AJC Radio Just Calls says a very special thank you uh, to those officers. Ladies and gentlemen, as we have had to go down a very difficult road tonight, Dealing with the tragedy of January 6th, the insurrection, as we have reflected and looked back, uh, it is clear uh, to our special guests, uh, Jody Evans, to the AJC Radio co-host, and to all those in this country, it is, it is abundantly clear uh, that change has to happen. Uh, we push for that change as advocates uh, on the front lines, as AJC Radio and a just cause. Until next time, America, take care, be safe. And let's take to know what we've heard tonight. And hopefully uh, we will live by the saying that it takes a village. Without a village, it cannot get done. Till next time, America, good night. <laughs>